Well, good morning. Happy May. My kids found me this morning and said, it's May. And I'm like, it is. We're, yesterday it was Christmas. So, okay, it's May. All right, sounds good. Um, love it. That's awesome. Uh, happy May. Happy Sunday morning. Glad you guys are here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. And this morning, as we come into this time in our service, we are going to be continuing our generous series that we started this past week. We're going to be looking this morning at relationships. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one on your row. That's page 869 uh, in there if you want to grab uh, one of those. What comes to mind when you hear the word relationships? What comes to mind when you hear the word relationships? I know for many of us, what we immediately think about are parents or siblings or our spouse, if we're married or children, if we have children, we think about those relationships. We think about the dynamic there. We think about whether those relationships are good, whether they're bad, whether they're struggling, whether there's room for growth. Maybe when we hear the word relationships, we think about work. Maybe it's a relationship that you have with a boss or a relationship that you have with a client or a relationship that you have with a coworker who's a good friend. And you think about um, how the grind from nine to five is made easier or more difficult by your work environment. When the word relationship comes up, maybe you think of friendships. You think about the people who God has brought into your life who are like family, even though they're not family. Maybe you think about uh, your cats and your books if you're an introvert. You start counting those up in your mind and you go, I'm well taken care of. I have many cats and I have many books. And I don't have to talk to anybody. My relationships are good, right? I'm just giving you a hard time. I'm an introvert sometimes. Um, but what do you think about when you, when you hear the word relationships? Maybe for you, you don't think about the people, Right? in relationship. You think about how the word relationship evokes feeling inside of you. Maybe it evokes hurt because you think about relationships in your life, even important relationships with your life, with a, a spouse or, or with a child or with a parent. And, and what you see as you think about that relationship is difficulty and struggle and strife. Maybe it's been in a bad spot or you've been burned. And so relationship feels like a really tough word for you to swallow. Maybe for some of you, you hear the word relationship and, and it's a longing, right? You go, I'm, I'm not connected. I, I want to be known. I, I want to be connected, but I don't have those relationships. I'm not in a season of life where I feel like the people around me know me and, and care for me and, and, and that I, I have the people in my life that I need to, to function as I, I desire to be. And yet for others, relationship may be a, a sweet word. You're reminded of the good gifts of people that God has brought into your life. And in all likelihood, what you think about the word relationships or relationships probably varies from day to day or week to week or month to month um, just based on how things are going. Several years ago, I read a book that referenced people and relationships being like Legos. Now, if you've been to my house before, you know that there are more Lego sets than I should probably tell you exist. That's a combination of me having played with those as a kid, right? I enjoyed that as a kid. So when my kids were little, we started buying sets, and then my parents did the obligatory grandparent purge of the attic, and so bins of my stuff ended up at my house, and I'm sitting there going, great, 
what am I going to do with all this? And so we added more, and then COVID hit, and we were all trying to figure out what to do. And so that was an easy win, right? Hey, you're bored? Go spend two hours doing this. We can still Amazon stuff to the door. That's awesome, right? The point with Legos and relationships that this book made was simply this. It said Lego bricks are designed to fit with each other. Doesn't matter if you bought a set 50 years ago or if you go to the store this afternoon, if you pull out a Lego brick, it is designed to fit with other Lego bricks. That's how they're engineered. That's their purpose. But while the purpose of Lego bricks is to be pieced together, not all Lego bricks have the same number of connectors, do they? Some have four on top, some have one, some have eight. And similarly, as people, we are designed to connect to others. God has made us relational beings, just like he is a relational being. He exists perfectly in community, within himself, in relationship, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And because we bear his image, we are also designed, created, engineered to be in relationship with other people. We're designed to connect to others. But just like a Lego brick, each person has a different capacity and a different need for connection. Your need to and your ability to connect with other people may be small while others may be large. I'm the little piece with two studs on top. My wife is one of those giant plates that you can build a building upon, right? And then we find each other and get married, right? Like you're looking at your spouse and going, that's true. Yeah, that's us, right? Um, But if we're really living up to our design, we will be in relationship with other people. But that's where it gets tricky, doesn't it? That's where it gets tricky, right? Because just because we may be designed by our creator, by God for relationships, doesn't mean that any of that is easy, is it? Sin, right, has come into the world and it's taken this beautiful dynamic of knowing people and being connected to others. And it has interrupted that with things like Sin and pride and ego and combativeness and unforgiveness and unmet needs. And so we wrestle through those things because they make relationships difficult. In fact, the better you know someone and the closer you get, the greater capacity that person often has to hurt or even disappoint you. And yet, despite that fact, we remain called by Jesus to be in relationship with others around us, which brings us to this morning. What does the Bible have to say to us about the day-to-day interactions that we have in relationship with other people? And specifically, because in this series, we're talking about generosity, how do we make sure as followers of Jesus that we don't just exist around other people, but we embody the generosity and the Christ-likeness that we should have toward those that we live with and we live around? You know, when, when we looked at this topic, when we started studying for this, you know, the Bible is, is replete with examples of relationship. There's case studies of good relationships and bad relationships. There's commands, there's imperatives, there's more. But what I want to do this morning is look at Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you've been around church, you've probably heard this parable before. I remember being in VBS as a kid. And I think we acted this out. All I remember is it was the one time throughout the course of the year that you could like jump over the pews in the sanctuary and run around and no one got mad at you, which was awesome, right? 
So I, I remember learning this growing up and, and, and hearing this story over and over again. But what I want us to see this morning is in this parable, there are three dynamics of generosity in relationship that we see through the interactions of two complete strangers. And Jesus' point in telling it to us is that he's going to show us what it looks like even if you have no idea who the other person is, to live out of a deep and overflowing love for others because of the generosity and graciousness we've received from God. So how much more then do we embody these types of actions that we'll see toward those that we do have relationship with? So let's take a look at Luke 10, starting in verses uh, 25, and we'll begin. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says this. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, let's pause there and and set up the context here just a little bit. As you read through the Gospels, you see this kind of thing happen from time to time. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. He's teaching in an open place. And a religious leader, a Pharisee, a lawyer, someone comes up to him and asks him a test question trying to trip Jesus up, trying to get him to say something that would cause him to be discredited. And Jesus sees straight through it, and just Jesus jukes him straight out and says, look, if you're a lawyer, right, I know that you understand what the law says. You're not asking me a question that you don't know the answer to. So Jesus looks at him and he says, how do you read the law? What do you understand it to say? And so the man replies and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and strength and mind and your neighbor as yourself. We see this in other places in Scripture. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? How do I take everything that I know about God in the Bible, in the law, summarize it, to what is most critical. And Jesus replies and says what? Love the Lord your God. The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. The whole of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So this is not new. This is not uncommon. This is not unknown. They understand this. And so Jesus replies and tells this man, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But even with the right answer, it isn't enough. If you look at verse 29, it says, Seeking to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? If I really am going to honor what the law says, if I'm going to understand, Jesus, what you are calling me to do, as I look horizontally to the relationships around me, who does that apply to? How do I understand that command to work on a ground level. Because in the lawyer's mind as a Jew, he likely would have assumed that Jesus, 
also being a Jew, would tell him, hey, just go love the other Jews around you. That's your neighbor. Because if you were a Jewish person living in that time, that is what you thought. You thought, I'm a Jew, I'm living in Israel, the people around me that I'm called to love that are my neighbors or my Jewish brothers and sisters, that's it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe he assumed that Jesus would give him a list or, or some parameters, but his aim here, seeking to justify himself, is to narrow his focus on what he was already doing. You don't seek to justify yourself unless you think you've already got it figured out. Be nice if it was that easy, wouldn't it? To only love the people in relationship that we were already inclined to love. That would be great. We could pack this up and go home, right? I love these people over here. I'm inclined to love them. I like them. I don't disagree with them. I don't have issue with them. There's no strife with them. They don't get on my nerves. They don't have a different worldview than me. They don't vote differently than me. They don't handle their kids differently than me. They don't have issues with me. I, I don't have to worry about that. I'm already inclined to love and receive them without issue. That's my neighbor. That's what this lawyer is thinking. But in God's economy of relationships, one who has rightly understood and experienced the generous love of God does not ask questions about how to limit the display of the love of God toward others or to work their way out of obeying God's commands for how we treat others, but seek opportunity to demonstrate it to all those who we can by the power and the mercy of Jesus. And so Jesus tells this lawyer this parable as a grace to him to say, if you really want to know what it looks like, if you really want to know what it looks like to be generous and loving toward people in relationship as your neighbor, let me tell you a story. Let me put some flesh on this so that you can see just what this looks like. So let's see how this plays out in this parable, starting here in verse 30. Says Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was walking down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. First thing I want us to see this morning is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be generous in extending mercy and compassion to others. What do I mean by that? Let's take a look back at this passage here. Uh, this road from, from Jerusalem to Jericho, if you um, if you zoom out and, and just kind of think about the, the geography of, of Israel, Jerusalem is up in the, the Judean mountains, and Jericho is situated right near the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. And so even though the distance between these two cities is about 17 miles, there's a, a drop in elevation of about 3,300 feet from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it's through this elevation of 
rocky mountains and deep ravines. And to this day, if you pull up Google Maps and, and get it, get out and take a look at it and see these two cities in present-day Israel, there's just not a lot between them. It's not a friendly environment. It's not the place where you go, oh, yeah, I'm going to build a summer house over there on the top of that ravine. Like, it doesn't work that way. This is not an environment in which you want to spend any more time than what's necessary to go from point A to point B. Now, this was well known in Jesus' day, so it wasn't uncommon for this road to be marked by pockets of people who were robbers, who would hide in caves and hide in the crevices of the mountains and wait for travelers who were maybe foolish enough to walk alone or unable to go with a group of people or unable to get away quickly to come along so that they could jump out and take advantage of them. And there wasn't much you could do if you encountered robbers either, right? There wasn't a lot of places you can run. There's a cliff over here, there's a mountain over here, and there's a path in between. And so it wasn't as simple as just evading people. You could fight. You could surrender. They didn't have MMA. There's no LTCs at this point, right? You could fight. You could surrender. Try to make an escape. And that's what we see here. An Israelite man is walking down the road. And he's attacked by robbers who beat him up, strip him of his clothes, and leave him half dead. And then along comes a, a priest. What is the assumption that you and I have? What is the assumption this lawyer has when you hear that a priest is walking down the road. Our first inclination is, surely that man would stop and help. His job, what he does from sun up until sundown, is go to the temple of God, and on behalf of the people of God, stand before Yahweh and offer sacrifices, and pray for the people, and help them, and serve them, and love them, because his job is to be a shepherd over the people of Israel. Where everyone else may fail to understand the importance of people, and rightly understanding their value and their worth before God Almighty, the priest would be it. They know the law. They worship God. You'd expect that we'd see the priest to offer, to stop, and help. But that's not what we see here, is it? He comes upon the man, he sees him, and he passes by on the other side. Whoever designed the woodlands somehow understood that it's really important to be able to walk 10 people wide down sidewalks in our area. That's because we've got bikes and strollers and everything else. We live in a an area where there are palatial sidewalks. Oh my goodness, there's six-lane highways, right? That is not this road. If you look at pictures of, of what this may have looked like, passing by this guy on the other side may have meant stepping over him because that's how much room there is to get by this guy. So there's an intentional decision being made here, isn't there? There's someone up ahead there's someone I have encountered who needs what I can provide. There's someone I've come upon who needs mercy, who needs help. And as I get closer and closer and closer and I look at what's going on, I say to myself, hard pass. Hard pass. I'm going to keep going on the way. 
Now, before we look at this priest and assume the worst about him, there's a couple things going on, right? Maybe he's afraid that just like this guy got mugged, the robbers are hiding around the next corner, and if he stops and he renders aid, he's going to end up in the same spot as this other guy, right? Maybe as a priest, he's sitting there going, I don't know if this dude is dead or not, but homeboy isn't kicking, right? If he's dead and I'm a priest and I touch him, I'm about to go through a very long ritual purification process that is costly and time-intensive and will rob me of things that I want to be able to do. So maybe that's what's going on. The point is, whatever his motivation is, it is not to stop and help this man. And then along comes a Levite, right? Who are the Levites? Levites were aides to priests in the temple. Same environment. Same currency. They exist as religious leaders, worshipers of God, zealots for the law, helpers to the people of Israel. And again, you expect this Levite to stop, but instead he passes by and continues on his way. And then along comes a Samaritan. What's the story here? Samaritans were half-breeds, part Jewish, part foreigner. When Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and transplanted people in and exported people out, and then people came back, were no longer pure Jews, half-breeds. They were hated by the Jewish people, objects of disdain, unwelcome. You can almost imagine if you close your eyes and, and look at this lawyer receiving this parable from Jesus, you can almost see the snarl on his lips at the mention of the word Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan is walking through Israel. This man would have known that where he was, he was a, a foreigner. He was a stranger. This man would have known that anywhere he went, if his identity was known, he would have been met with contempt would have been treated like the scum of the earth. He would have known that as he journeyed, as it says in verse 33, he's journeying, as he's journeying through Israel, he could expect mistreatment. He could expect judgment. All manner of things that diminished his worth and his personhood. And yet, what do we see? That baggage, that backstory knowledge of who he is in the eyes of the people that he's around. What do we see? Samaritan comes upon the man and has compassion. In that moment, it didn't matter that they were unlike each other. In that moment, it didn't matter that the Samaritan's history likely had frustration and baggage and hurt doesn't matter how he would have been viewed by others. It didn't matter that if the tables were turned and he was the man on the side of the road and the other man had been walking by, that he likely would have felt justified in passing by just like the Levite and just like the priest and felt good about himself for not stooping low enough to associate with the Samaritan man. It didn't matter that there was potential risk for himself, risk to be hurt, 
Risk to be unappreciated, risk to be inconvenienced. He saw someone who was in a dire situation and he felt compassion. He considered the need in front of him and sought to be an agent of mercy. Who are you in that scenario, church? As I asked that question of myself, I immediately said, I am the priest. I am the priest. My natural inclination when I come upon people who have hurt and need and struggle is not to say, what, Lord, can I do? It's to take inventory and go, I don't have time. I don't have capacity. I don't know if this is going to be an investment that that pays off. I I don't know if I'm the right person to do this. My mind floods with questions. I don't want to be that person. Who are you in that scenario, church? We live in a world that is full of people who have mess, who have junk, who have needs. They may not have been mugged on a walk through their neighborhood, but they've been beaten up and bruised by their own sin and the sins of others. They have difficulties in their marriage or with their children or with their finances. They may be people who have wronged you or who you feel enmity or strife toward. Is your bent toward people to say things like, I don't want to get involved. I don't have time for this. They probably brought that on themselves. Someone else can help out here and so on. Or is it like we see with the Samaritan to have compassion, to seek to be an agent of mercy, to ask how you can demonstrate the generous love of God toward others who are in need. Now, this doesn't mean that you walk around and get involved in everyone's business. It doesn't mean that there aren't really difficult situations that you or I may face or come upon where wisdom says that our first response is to say, okay, I have some questions here. I need to seek some counsel before taking action doesn't mean that the relationships that we have, that there's an expectation in all of those things to set aside hurts or set aside issues or just wipe the slate clean because you want to be loving and compassionate toward other people. Love doesn't ignore real consequence that happens inside relationship. In fact, love oftentimes requires working through and, and embracing and, and, and understanding the weight of consequence. But it does mean that our disposition toward others who we are in relationship with is to say, Lord, I'm open and available to what you might want to do, to be a conduit of mercy, to see beyond the surface to what lies underneath, and to see and esteem people as image bearers of God and our friendships, our relationships, our marriages, to be people who boldly embrace a willingness to step in and minister to one another. But that's not all we see. Let's continue with this parable here. Compassion and mercy ultimately find their expression in action, lest they become simply pity. So look at verses 34 through 36 with me. Let's see what happens next. Samaritan here says, He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Second thing I want us to see this morning 
is that as followers of Christ, we are called to be generous in showing love and care to others, right? Unlike the priest and Levite who walked by on the other side, what does verse 34 say? It says, he went to him. He went to him. He went to the man. He got down on his level. He got into the mess. He got into his situation and took it upon himself to do something, to bind up his wounds, to treat him, to put the man on his own animal and to deliver him to an inn and take care of him. And in the morning, he gave money to the innkeeper and said, continue taking care of this guy until his needs are met. And whatever charges you incur, I will make sure that you are whole when all is said and done. You know, when I think about the practical nature of showing love and care to others, I'm often reminded of a local church that for many years, uh, Sheridan and I and, and the church that we were at would, would go to every single summer up in Amarillo. Uh, we'd lead a group of students and, and adults to go up there, and, and we'd go to a place called City Church, and they, they have a really incredible ministry. They embody this kind of over-the-top love and care for others better than just about anything I've seen. You know, decades ago, uh, what this church realized in the heart of Amarillo was that during the summer months, a bunch of kids who live in downtown Amarillo come from broken homes. Dad might be in prison. Dad may be gone. Mom and dad may be out of the picture, and grandma's raising multiple generations of kids in the home. It's a single parent family, maybe, and so you've got 12-year-olds raising their four younger siblings at home, largely without mom or dad, who are gone all day long to work, no supervision, no care. And when summer came, they began to realize many of these kids eat every single day because they go to school and their school feeds them breakfast and lunch. And when they go home, there's not a guarantee that there's bread on the table. And so City Church wanted to show love and care for these families beyond just showing up at the door and saying, hey, I'm here with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you heard it? Not that there's anything wrong with that. But they showed up and they went, man, there's so much more going on here than a spiritual deficit. Yes, these people need Jesus, but it's hard to see your need for Jesus when you haven't eaten in two days. So they started making breakfast and sending the church bus out and picking up fleets of kids, one after one after one of busloads of kids, brought them to the church and fed them breakfast. And then they started feeding them lunch. And then they begin to notice that many of these families who were not receptive to the gospel begin to listen because they saw that this church was going out of their way to demonstrate sacrificial love for their family. And they were doing it with deep care and affection for them as people. Not just showing up and feeding them a meal, but saying, let's fix your home. Let's find you a job. Come sit in your living room and know you. And know your story and know your hurt. Know your history and pray with you and love you and serve you and not just make you an object of increasing our baptism stats, 
by wanting to know who you are as a person made in the image of God and praying with them through difficulties and welcoming them as families into a community of believers who love them and didn't disparage them for their circumstances and have pity on them as though, oh my goodness, look at the good we're doing for you. We have so much and you have so little. But instead saying, you deserve a fellowship and a community of people who've been bought by the blood of Jesus and whose circumstances in this world have no more definition of your worth and value before the Father than mine. I want you to know that. Fast forward to this day. This church for decades now has been doing this, and they, to this day, feed thousands of kids meals in downtown Amarillo every single day of the summer. A few years back, there was an empty lot across the street from their church. They bought it. They built a rock wall. They built basketball courts. They built snow cone stands. They put in bounce houses so that every day of the summer, they can go out and feed kids, but they can grab whole neighborhoods of kids in a fleet of 15 passenger vans, bring them to the park so that maybe just maybe that day, they can hear about the good news of Jesus and do it in an environment where they feel like they are the most important special, cared-for people in the world. You know, while we were there, the gentleman that ran many of these lunch routes uh, is a man named Jackie. And I remember sitting down with him one afternoon and asking him about his story and just, hey, how'd you get involved here? You know, tell me your story. And do you ever ask a question and then go, I was not ready for the answer to that? Like, Lord, thank you for, for what I'm about to hear, but I, I can't do this. This is too much, Right? So he begins to well up, tears in his eyes, and he begins to tell me about how the pastor of the church had found him several years in the past. Jackie had ruined his life, lost his family, lost his job, lost his kids, lost everything he had, and he ended up drunk and homeless out on the streets of Amarillo. Community of people who lived down by the tracks, train tracks, as trains came through. Everything you can imagine would be associated with that, associated with that nothing but the shirt on his back. And then he met Donnie, the pastor. Donnie didn't show up and say, you know what your greatest need is, Jackie? Your greatest need is to know Jesus. It's true. Absolutely, unequivocally true. He said, hey, my church is right over there. Can I bring you in and feed you a meal? Can I get you some clothes? Can I give you a hot shower? Can I just sit with you for a few minutes? And this process continued over and over and over again. Jackie would go back to the tracks. Donnie would find him, invite him to come in. Eventually, Jackie came to see his need for Jesus and trusted in him. But that wasn't the best part of the story, right? Care, love for this man looked like them saying, okay, now let's get you a job. Let's help you get your life in order. Let's help bring reconciliation to the relationships that you've lost, even if they don't resume. And many years later, as I was sitting with him there in the cafeteria of the church, he's telling me this story. He's telling me, you know, Chris, the, the mercy of Jesus toward me is this. I met Jesus. I know Jesus. And everything that I had lost has been restored. I didn't regain my, my family. I didn't regain my spouse. I didn't regain my children. But I met someone else who understood the mercy of Jesus. We've been married for five years now. 
And I went out to the streets of Amarillo and I started adopting kids off the streets of Amarillo and bringing them into my home. Not once or twice, but six times. And he spent every day of his summer waking up and driving to the church with his kids and with his wife so that he could make hot lunches and go out to the communities where he once lived and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who had a deep need for him. And I asked him, why? What led you to do that? And he said, when I see how merciful the Lord has been to me, how could I choose to do anything different to those around me? Those are men, right? This is not an isolated story. All of us in this room could, could come together and we could talk about a time where, where God has profoundly used us or used someone in our life to demonstrate generous, over-the-top, unexplainable love and care empowered by Jesus toward us. We know someone who has, or we've been the recipient of it, or, or, or we've been the, the giver of that. This is not a unique story. This is what people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus believe should be in, inclined as we have opportunity to do so, to do. Be generous in showing love and care for others because of what the Lord has done. You know, looking back to, to Luke here, would it not have been sufficient for the Samaritan to show love for this man by simply going to get someone to render aid? Would that not have been sufficient? I think it would have. Would it have been sufficient for him to deliver the man to the city ahead and let someone else take care of him? I think either one would have been a display of unexpected care and concern. But we see so much more. We see an intentional, sacrificial, deeply profound display of care and love toward this man who is a complete stranger. How much more, church, should we then operate toward those we know? How much more should we, as we have opportunity, as Galatians 10 says, to do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith, use our knowledge of how merciful God has been, how generous he's been toward us, to infuse in our relationships mercy, love, care, concern for one another. What Jesus shows us in this parable here is that there is a form of love, we know this, that is talk and transaction, but there's also a, a form of love toward others that's investment and transformative, and grace-filled and sacrificial, that gives of time, that gives of resources, that gives of mental capital to see that others are loved and cared for. And that isn't just reserved, right, for people that we want to share the gospel with. It's not, hey, I want you to know Jesus, so I'm going to go over the top and caring for you. This also applies to our homes and our work, our marriages, our children, our church. Does that mark our lives as believers and our relationships? Last thing I want us to see is this. Look back at Luke chapter 10, verses 36 through 37. Jesus has just finished telling this parable. Now he's going to apply the lesson to the lawyer who's listening. Jesus says to the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Conclusion of this parable shows us that as followers of Jesus Christ, believe we're called to be generous 
in building one another up. What do I mean by that? We saw in this parable, right? Samaritan is the one who showed mercy to the man who was hurt. But if you zoom out from this parable, you zoom out from this interaction, you see that Jesus is ultimately showing mercy to the lawyer, isn't he? Jesus knew the intention of his heart. He knew that his intention was not to understand. He knew that the intention of this man's heart was not to figure out how he could cover the gaps in his understanding of what it meant to be a neighbor to other people. His heart's intention was to justify himself. Jesus could have looked at him and said, hey, you're a smart guy. You're a lawyer. What do you think? What do you think your neighbor is? Who do you think your neighbor is? Surely you've read the scripture. Surely you know the law. This is an easy answer. This is a gimme. You know who your neighbor is. But he doesn't do that, does he? Jesus saw an opportunity to display to this man and to all who were listening a deeper truth about what it means to generously love those around you by painting a picture. A story that would leave no question marks about the fact that mercy and care and compassion and love are elements that flow out of people who love God toward others. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrates for us that even in the face of a person whose heart was far away from him, his aim was to build the man up provide him with an opportunity to see and understand where he still has opportunity to rightly orient his heart around the truth of God. He directs him to a place of understanding. He says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Lawyer, I want you to get this. I don't want you to walk away feeling justified in yourself. I want you to walk away and know what it feels like to understand what God has called us to. I'm pleading with you to know. Answer this question. Who was the neighbor? And he doesn't leave a question mark about what he's supposed to do with that. He says, go and do likewise. It's hard, but it's not difficult to understand This is what it looks like to embody an understanding that you, lawyer, we, church, are the people of God. And we live and operate in a world around us of people who are broken and hurting, both in this room and outside of this room, and have the opportunity to be conduits the generous mercy and grace of our Father. As followers of Jesus, we have a call to build one another up, to not leave on one another hanging, to to not leave question marks, but to build one another up in the knowledge and obedience of Jesus, helping to instruct and correct and encourage one another along the way, right? This can be hard because if you're like me, I don't want anyone to know my doubts. I don't want them to know my questions. I don't want them to know my fears. I don't want them to know my junk. But you know what I need more than self-preservation? I need the gospel truth found in this word to be spoken over to me by the Lord as I read and by his people as they minister to me as well. That's what I need. If you look in the New Testament, there are over 30 different specific times that a unique action is given to believers that we're supposed to do for one another. Greet one another, forgive one another, love one another, confess your sins to one another, comfort one another, and so on. But we also see as it relates to this idea here about being generous and building one another up, that, that 
The Bible also says to us that we are to instruct one another and exhort one another and encourage one another and teach and admonish one another and to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, to build up one another. Our aim in relationship with those in and outside of the church should have as its highest ideal that those that we interact with come to be more like Jesus. Whether that's because they grow in their salvation or they come to understand their need for Jesus by coming to faith in him. We do that by modeling Christ and speaking truth into their lives. You know, on some level, all of these things sound good, right? I would love to be a person who is generous and extending mercy and compassion to others, who sacrificially shows love and care, who works to build people up and generously and freely steps into all of those things. But practically doing it is another thing, isn't it? Depending on your season of life, your ability, your capacity to do these things, you know, for, for, for us today, when we think about what to do with this, practically for you, it may not extend beyond your home in this season of life. And if that's all you can do, do that with the fullness and confidence of knowing what Christ has done for you. You may be in a place in life where you say, hey, this is good, but I need to be on the receiving end of this. I need to be on the receiving end of this. And that's where we as a church look at you and say, Coming into this place on Sunday morning is good, but you need to be in relationship with other people. Let's find a community group. Talk to the elders. Talk with Seth. Let us know how we can work to demonstrate to you the good grace and mercy of Jesus and bring alongside you people who are going to walk with you. We're not going to just drop you off and say, cool, did my job. Now you can figure it out. But are going to say, I'm in this with you for the long haul because I understand how gracious God has been to me. I want you to experience that as well. Whatever season of life we find ourselves in, as we as a church body embody and embrace this kind of dynamic, I believe we will enjoy the richness of love for one another that Jesus envisioned for us as a church and for our ministry to the world. So as we wrap it up this morning, my prayer for us is simply that as we have opportunity to do so this week, as we consider the relationships that the Lord has put into our life, that we would be people who say, Lord, help me to be generous toward those who you've brought into my life, just as Christ has been generous toward me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can talk about what it looks like to be generous in relationships, to believe best about people, to be merciful, to show love and care, to seek to build one another up because you first sought us out. As your word says, we love because you first loved us. Everything flows from there. Help us to mirror in our lives in some small way the rich mercy and generosity that we've received from you, Christ, as our Savior, who saw us in the midst of our own mess and brought us back 
to life. We celebrate that together this morning as we continue in our time of worship together. For your honor and glory, we pray these things. King Jesus, amen.